All right, well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Before you open your Bibles, um, I just want to reiterate what Chris has prayed and what we have proclaimed through Scripture and through song, that we are here in order to worship Jesus and to make much of Him. And this is the week preceding Thanksgiving, time in which uh, many of us will be with family and looking forward to some time away from work. And while that can be a joy, um, that can also be a great pain at times. And I just want to remind you this morning that the Bible says that if you are in Jesus, then you are accepted and that you are dearly loved and that your sin, no matter how deep and how large, that it is remembered no more. Your family might remember what you've done, but Jesus doesn't remember what you've done. God doesn't judge you for what you've done because of Jesus. And so we're accepted and we're loved. And we need to hear that this morning. And we need to extend that to those that we'll sit around a Thanksgiving table with. And maybe those that we will not. I've got some good news I want to share with you this morning. Um, For the last year, we've been praying about a larger meeting space. And uh, a year ago in December, or at least my phone tells me that a year ago, last December, I started taking pictures of this building uh, over at 447 North Evergreen. So if you don't know where that is, if you're not that familiar with Midtown, go to Joe's Liquor Store on Poplar and, and hang a right, go north. Um, if you're headed downtown and in between Poplar and North Parkway, there I think it's at the corner of Galloway and Evergreen is a, an old sanctuary. It's built in 1925 by the same architect that, built, that, uh, that designed the Pink Palace. It's an old limestone building. Beautiful. It was known as Trinity Methodist Church. The church was in decline over the last few years and a couple years ago. Actually, a lot, yeah, a couple of years, about a year and a half ago, they sold the building in a private developer um, bought it with a he manages a trust fund um, from a medical device company and he has a hobby of investing in old historical properties in Memphis and refurbishing them and so I just started stalking the building about 12 months ago and in April um, I saw him and his dog outside, and I stopped by and was the weird stranger who, for the umpteenth time, asked him about the property. And he said, well, have you seen the inside? And I said, I haven't. I've only seen pictures. And he said, well, come on in for a tour. And an hour and a half later, I left the building thinking, wow, what an amazing space. Talked with him about the option for rental, and he just had no idea exactly how he was going to use the space. He said, honestly, I just really like the, the auditorium, and sometimes I just come up here and drink my coffee in the sanctuary. <laughs> and so from April until last night, we've probably spent 24 hours in just negotiations, phone calls, building a relationship. Many of you showed up and helped us move some pews one day. And um, as of last night, we have a rental agreement for this space. And we praise Jesus for that. So, 
not, not only is it clear that we need more adult space and more room to move around, but our kids have outgrown the space that they are in several months ago. And um, we see this as God's provision for us. The rental agreement is for the next two years. And so uh, it's not a permanent plan, but we're trusting God that this is the next step that He would have for us. What you didn't see in the pictures were six classrooms that are downstairs below the sanctuary that will be ours for um, utilizing throughout the week, seven days a week. Um, They'll simply be our classrooms, and so we'll be able to leave them set up and design them for our children's ministry as they need to be designed with no setup and breakdown that's needed. The chapel or the sanctuary will be used for weddings, and so there will be some, some minimal audio and video setup and breakdown, but um, we're thankful for this space, and we're thankful that God, in His timing and in His provision, has, has brought it to us. And so we will uh, sign this rental agreement today and, and send it back to the owner with plans to have our first service there December 22nd in order to close the new year out. And so our last service will be here on, I believe that's December 15th, and we will load our equipment up. We're in the process of purchasing a lot of new kids' equipment. See? Need, need more kids. Need more kids' equipment. Um, audio and video equipment, and we've, our teams have been diligently working on this over the last few months. And um, so as a church, we've never really purchased um, an adequate uh, audio system. And we'll be doing that over the next uh, week or so. Um, We listened to some speakers in that room last week. And Charlie um, has come along beside us and Michael. um, And they have said, hey, we're going to help you guys out. And so we're so thankful for them. And I just want to thank so many of you who have prayed over this last six, nine months diligently along with us for those who showed up and helped move pews one night for our deacons um, for Caitlin and for uh, for all of you who have been researching and thinking um, Robert and Samantha and and Michael and I hesitate to name names but you know who you are I know it's not like the Emmys or something but that's kind of what it feels like um for Jason, who I told him we couldn't afford him if he had charged us for his attorney's fees because we went through so many different versions of the lease. And I'm so thankful for, for his help and so many of you um, who are so willing to donate your time and your prayers. And it's been a group effort. But most of all, we know that it's Jesus' provision And we're so thankful for him. We look forward to seeing how he wants to use this space. Not so much to be a blessing to us. We could stay here where we're at. And probably it would be easier in some ways. We wouldn't have to raise any money. We could just love the folks who are around us. But God's given us this space because I believe that there's more people in Midtown and Downtown and throughout the Memphis area who Jesus desires that they would come into his family. And they would know him and love him and know what it means to be loved by the Father. And know what it means to grow up in maturity and in health with a family. And so I look forward, we look forward 
to seeing how Jesus wants to use us and how he wants to use this building as a provision and as a resource. So with that in mind, um, over the next two months, um, throughout December and January, we're asking that you would pray along with us in what we're calling a next step campaign. And we're asking and praying that God would help us to raise $25,000 over the next two months. And that money will be used for a variety of things. Um, Audio and video, uh, signage inside and out, kids' equipment. Um, There's a long list of what's needed. Um, Everything on the cleaning side to uh, paper towel holders to vacuums and mops. Um, there's many, many things that need to be purchased over the next probably 30 days. Um, but hey, Black Friday's around the corner, right? Um, but if you were asking that you would just diligently pray and seek the Lord as to what He would put on your heart, um, you can give uh, through the regular giving avenues um, online. You can give online and there's a new uh, fund called Next Step Campaign. And so we would ask that these gifts would be over and above your regular tithes and offerings, but that you would consider what God would put on your heart um, to help us uh, in this capital campaign in order to make the purchases that we need in order to move into this building and to do that well. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing how God provides. He's always been so faithful, and uh, I look forward to seeing how He's going to provide in this way for us. So let me pray and just thank God for his provision. And then we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you that your timing is always right, even when um, we don't understand it. And um, God, thank you that you love us, that you've called us your family, that you've called us your sons and your daughters because of Jesus. And so God, this day we thank you for your provision of of a new space. Um, God, we know that this space is not our own. I love what the owner said. He said, I view this just as a, like I'm a caretaker. And so God, we look forward to seeing how you'll utilize this space in order that many others could come to know Jesus. God, we pray that you would continue to provide for your church. And we look forward to seeing how you grow our faith in this process. God, thank you for this family who means so much to me. God, thank you that we can worship you together. We pray that you'd speak to us now through your word. It's powerful. It's active. God, I truly believe that you seek to give us a bigger picture of who you are today. And that you desire to grow our hearts. That we would overflow with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're continuing in this study on the life of David. And uh, love this study that we've been in. Today's text has a lot to teach us about worship. Back in college, I went to Sanford University. I was a religion major there. And it's a Baptist school in Birmingham, Alabama. And while I was there, we would have the opportunity, those who were religion students who were studying to be young preacher boys, we would have the opportunity to go out all throughout Alabama 
And there were different Southern Baptist associations where churches would come together and they would meet us at the local association office. We'd get up early in the morning and drive and, and a local pastor would meet us and take us out to his church building and we would preach. And I remember one of the very first Sundays this happened, one of my best friends, Jake, he was short and heavy set, And Jake came back and told the story. He said there were so few people there that they didn't even break up for Sunday school. They just came in the auditorium for Sunday school, and they look, he said, they looked at me. And they said, do you, preacher, do you want to lead the Sunday school hour? And I said, well, I, didn't, I didn't prepare to lead the Sunday school hour. I think I'll just participate. And he said, they went on during the Sunday school hour to share a lesson for 45 minutes. He said, I think it was from Deuteronomy 31. And they quoted one verse. For their rock is not our rock. And they went on to tell of the ills of rock and roll music for 45 minutes. How rock and roll music is killing the culture and they're bringing it into the church and their rock is not our rock. And whenever we talked about worship wars and music throughout the next few years in college, if anything came up about music, we would look to Jake and he would say, for their rock... It is not our rock. We had so much fun with that. There have been worship wars for years throughout the church. And they'll continue. You know, when the hymns came out, when your grandparents look at you and say, what kind of church do you go to? One of those has got all the smoke machines and that rock and roll music and all those big speakers. And they just need to sing the hymns. That's what's wrong with the church. Well, the hymns were put to bar tunes. And they were criticized. I mean, there has been this criticism of music for years. It's been worship wars. But today's text is describing an even greater question than the type of music we should play in our church gatherings. Today's text answers a much larger question than the worship wars that take up so much time and energy over the centuries within the church. Today's text answers the question, how can we approach an unapproachable God? How can God live with us? You know, many of you have started putting up your Christmas trees and uh, we pulled our stuff out of the attic yesterday and We'll start putting our Christmas trip this afternoon because we're going out of town for Thanksgiving. Many of you will, will hang angel ornaments on your trees. Maybe you, your parents might even have a precious moments angel that you would hang on your tree or that's been passed down to you. Or a Hallmark angel or... I'm just picking on some friends. Um, but when you look in the Bible... And you see angels, they're not precious moments. People melt in fear. Keep in mind, these are the creatures that worship around the throne of God that were created in order to worship God. And if we melt in fear at the sight of an angel, what would the sight of God be like? How can we approach God in worship? 
I want you to consider this. We tend to flatten God in our Western society and only see Him as an always approving type of Father Christmas or this sweet infant in a manger. And He is those. He was the infant in the manger, but He wasn't only the infant in the manger. Tim Chester says it this way, the churches of medieval Europe were covered in murals depicting the final judgment in lurid detail. At best, God appeared distant, someone at the top of the picture. At worst, He appeared cruel and vindictive in the last hundred years. Perhaps uniquely in history. Our culture has turned this on its head. Now we view God as benign, tame, indulgent. We've stripped Him of His power. In a sense, we've handed over His power to the forces of nature which continue to fill us with awe. And all that is left for our God to do is to forgive like an indulgent grandparent. But the true God, the God revealed in the Bible, is not tame. Because He is holy and glorious and set apart, we are sinful. And we melt in His presence. We're completely unworthy of His attention, much less His affection and His love. We're sinners. I've entitled today's message, Our Good and Dangerous God. The big idea comes in the form of a question. How can God live with us how can God live with us look with me in 2nd Samuel chapter 6 as David answers that question beginning in verse 1 I'll read through verse 4 David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30,000 and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Oftentimes when we think of David, we think of a lot of different portraits. We think of David the shepherd boy, or David the giant slayer, or David the great king, or David the great warrior, or maybe we might even think of David the adulterer because of Bathsheba. But in order to understand the way in which God thinks of David and the way in which God remembers David, you have to look to Paul's writing in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. He says... That God remembers him in this way. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. David was a man after God's own heart. A man who cared so deeply about the things that God cares about. When you think about that, how many Christians do you know today who says, Oh, just, just do your best. Just just hang in there. How many Christians do you know who say, oh, you win some, you lose some? That wasn't David's heart. 
David was committed to following God no matter what. And it, and it doesn't mean he did it perfectly. Far from it. But he wasn't a man of excuses. He was a worshiper of God. And he had a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the central place of worship. Back into Jerusalem, which had become the capital. So let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant for just a minute. Because if we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, then we have to talk about Indiana Jones. I know. And we have to talk about the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're rushing to beat the Nazis, right? To this powerful box. It's shrouded in secrecy and mystery and seems to hold this unlimited power and also seems to make men's faces melt. Remember that? That was scary. Y'all laugh at that. That was like, what, 82? Listen, I was like six years old then. That was scary back in the day if you were little, right? And so... We think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's not exactly, not exactly how the Ark was described in the Bible. The Ark was a wooden chest that was covered in gold, inside and out. It contained two tablets of stone that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. It also had Aaron's staff, and it had a sample of manna in it, in a golden jar. And it was a symbol to the people of Israel of God's presence. God's presence that was to remain in their midst. On the lid were two gold cherubim, two angels facing each other with outstretched wings. This was referred to as the mercy seat. And the ark was a symbol of the throne or reign of God. It was the place where the throne of God met the earth. And so David has set up his palace in Jerusalem... For centuries, the Israelites have desired to be in Jerusalem. And they finally overcome this enemy. The covenant that God had declared to Abraham that you will even take the land of the Jebusites. And the Jebusites are displaced and Jerusalem becomes their home and their capital. And David, being the good king who he was, understood that this kingdom wasn't about him. He had been anointed as a shepherd boy and he had walked with God. He had trusted God for decades. And David's heart's desire was to be led by God. He was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't interested in leading alone. And so it made perfect sense for him to go and to find the Ark of the Covenant. To bring it back to its rightful place. To set up the tabernacle in the capital as a central place of worship, representing David's desire to come under God's authority and to come under God's guidance and to come under God's direction. Now think about this picture. Just I want you to frame it with me for a minute because if you've read this passage before, you kind of just glance right over it. David takes 30,000 men with him. I've got a picture of the St. Jude Marathon um, from either last year or a couple years ago. Do you see the sea of people? Like, it's almost impossible. This is 25,000, maybe. David takes 30,000 men with him to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Do you think he was serious? I mean, what a parade. David wasn't playing around. 
This wasn't some little side project David had going on. He was determined to announce the Lord's return to the heart of his people. And for the people of Israel to genuinely follow after God. But when we set out to worship God, sometimes even our best intentions fail miserably because we are sinful. And God is dangerous. Look in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means God breaks out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. By the way, he was a Gentile. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This isn't in my notes. It's not connected to the rest of the sermon. I just want to point out as a footnote, David did not press down his emotion He didn't dismiss his emotion. He didn't avoid his emotion. He was angry. Who was he angry at? God. He was fearful. Who was he fearful of? God. So important when you experience emotion that you ride the emotion of what you are experiencing and that you bring that emotion to God. Which is what we're going to see David do. Now get this picture for a minute. David has 30,000 men with him. And if you go back and if you, if you do some of the history work, if you look at 1 Chronicles 13, which recaps this, what you'll see is this, this isn't just his soldiers. This is all of Israel that has been assembled from distant lands. I mean, this is people, this is a project that's been going on most likely for weeks and even for months. It's evolved into this elaborate planning of lots of leaders working together, and they are celebrating. First Chronicles 13 says they are celebrating with all their might. All these instruments and singing before the Lord, they're bringing the sacred piece of furniture that symbolizes God's presence into the capital city, can you hear the roar of their voices and the energy and the excitement in that moment of worship before the Lord? I mean, I know what it's like to run the St. Jude Marathon. I know what it's like to be in the corral, standing there with Ben and Andrew and a bunch of other friends, and you're standing there shoulder to shoulder, and there's thousands of people around you. And when you hear the music kick in right and you're hearing like just 
all the people around you begin to roar as they do a countdown, as one crowd moves and another crowd moves. And I've got to think that there's a little bit of an even greater roar than what we experienced at the marathon as these men are worshiping the Lord their God and celebrating all that He has done. And in the midst of that moment, when all of this celebration is taking place, and when they reach the threshing floor, which by the way is typically a symbol of judgment in the Scriptures, and the ox stumbles... And the cart is jolted. And Uzzah reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant. And God strikes him dead. Isn't that so crazy? Like this is one of the evidences why we believe this scripture is actually true. Like Jesus said it was inspired. I mean that's kind of a big deal. But who would put this in here? Like, who comes up with this kind of stuff? That God strikes a man down for seeking to put his hand and steady the Ark of the Covenant? Remember chapter 5, just preceding this, when God broke out, literally broke out against the Philistines? Now David and all of Israel are doing what they believe to be best. They're honoring and worshiping God. And God breaks out against them. What kind of God does that? Have you ever had an experience like that before? Maybe you're taking what feels like a really big risk for God. Or it feels like you're making a huge sacrifice and in the middle of it all it seems like God breaks out against you. A couple of things to note here. Obviously, we empathize with Uzzah. We struggle to understand how this could take place. But make no mistake about it. Uzzah is not an innocent bystander. He's in charge of this operation. And God had given the Kohathites, which is his household, the job of looking after the ark. But it was a dangerous job. He told him that in Numbers 4, verse 20. The Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. This had been declared to them. Before they even considered moving the ark, the priests had to cover it, first with a curtain and then with a special leather case. There were six carts that were used throughout the tabernacle for worship, but none were assigned to the Kohathites. The ark was only to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites using poles that went through the gold ringlets. 1 Samuel chapter 6, 19 and 20 had been a huge warning from 20 years earlier when the ark of the covenant had been moved to Uzzah's house, to his dad, Abinadab, when it had been moved to his house. Seventy men had ignored the Lord's instructions about the ark and they had been judged and were instantly killed by God. And the people had said in 1 Samuel 6 verse 20, they had uttered, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis portrays Jesus as the lion, Aslan. Early in the book, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe him to the children. Miss Beaver says, Is there anyone who can appear 
before Aslan without their knees knocking. She says, if there's anyone who can appear without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So the children ask whether he's safe. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And so we again face the question, how can God live with us? David's question in verse 9 is haunting. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Pick up in verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. Because of the ark of God. So David went and and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings... He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. There is something markedly different that takes place this time. There's no mention of a cart. The Levites are now carrying the ark. And there is sacrifice at the beginning of the journey and at the end of the journey. David is also wearing an ephod, a priestly garment. And so what's the difference? This time when the ark is brought in, a priestly offering and a sacrifice is the difference. As the ark entered the city, David danced spontaneously before the Lord Some people have tried to make this a mandate for dancing in the church. And so they have said, we must establish dance troops who will dance and uh, who will perform. And this seems to be more spontaneous. The organization of worship we'll see later. We will see choirs that are organized and troops of those who will sing and play instruments. We never see an organized dance troupe. So I'm sorry if uh, that has been a vision for you. Um, I struggle to sing and clap at the same time, but um, that's besides the point. When the sacrifices ended, David blessed the people, and they shared a meal together as each person receives bread and dates and raisins. God had come to his people. Do you see the symbolism? And they ate a meal in His presence. A symbol of friendship, of community, but most importantly, a sign of reconciliation with God. What does this story teach us? How can God live with us? 
sinful men and women? And the answer is through sacrifice. Not our sacrifice. It's the beauty of the gospel. So many people think that this is a point of the story where, oh, he's going to lay it on heavy now. He's going to talk about that 25000 that amount he's trying to raise for the offerings. He's going to talk about uh, some volunteerism that needs to take place. Or he'll go back to the old adage of, you've got to read the Bible every day. He's going to lay on the guilt. It's not the way in which we approach God. It's not through our sacrifice. The sacrifices point us to the blood of Jesus. At the cross, God broke out against His own Son in our place so that we could come into His presence. Let that sink in. God broke out against His own Son. The Bible says in Hebrews that we come into the presence of God Himself through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. You know, this Ark of the Covenant that they would bring in, part of their worship would be that when they sacrificed animals, they would take the blood of the animal and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the Ark. The place in which God would come and dwell with them. It was only through the blood of sacrifice, that God would place His judgment upon the sacrifice and not upon the people. But those sacrifices were meant to point us to Jesus. The perfect sacrifice who God would break out against and whom He would judge. And the Scriptures say, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, that God Himself, through the sprinkled blood of Jesus, He says it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, Abel, murdered by his brother, Scripture says that his blood cried out for vengeance. But Jesus' blood was different. Because Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. It cries out, come to the Father and find peace. And forgiveness and love. Jesus' blood springs, it speaks a better word. But that doesn't mean that we take God lightly. Because Hebrews 12 goes on to say, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, how do we live? Knowing that God is dangerous? And that He's good. We oftentimes talk about God's grace as if it trumps His holiness. And of course, if we put our faith in Jesus, then we don't have to fear that God will break out against us. But it's not that God used to be dangerous and that now He's good. God is holy. He's still holy. He's still a consuming fire. And David helps us to understand what it means to live in that tension of a dangerous and good God with reverence and awe for our good and dangerous God. Look at how the story ends in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel... 
honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. The NIV says, I will make myself more undignified than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David goes home. The first thing he gets when he walks through the door is an earful from his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Of Saul, She is so focused on what everyone around David thinks of him. She's horrified that he's removed his royal robes and that he's dancing before the people, that, that he is a king who is undignified. And David, he meets her sarcasm with some of his own. You see what he says there? He reminds her, I mean, this is a good marital spat. He reminds her, that it was God who appointed him as king, by the way, over your father. One of the ways that we live in the tension of a good and dangerous God is that we place more weight on who God is and what God commands and what God thinks than what others think. Do you hear the emphasis of Michael? Oh, how you've distinguished yourself today sarcastically the word distinguished comes from the word glory or weighty she in essence is saying you aren't giving weight to your position because you've taken off your off your royal garments and and you've put on these priestly garments and you're dancing around in priestly underwear with an ephod on who does that And David's response is so good. David says, I'll become even more undignified than this. I don't know if the message, or if that could be further translated, I'll take off more clothes than that. I don't think it just was about his clothes, though. I think it was about David's willingness to be what seemed like foolishness before the Lord. In the sight of others. I'll become more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. Listen, I want to wrap up with this. When we come to understand that God is both dangerous and good, it means we worry more about God's honor than our own. Listen, folks, that's a pretty freeing place to be. If I have to stand up here every week and preach and worry about my honor and what you think of me and whether it was good or not or whether it kept your interest or whether I went too long or whether I said what you agree with theologically, I would buckle under the weight of that. I would probably move to a new church about every two years and just recycle sermons. 
There is an amazing freedom that comes. And don't hear me say that I've got it figured out because most weeks I don't. Most weeks I go home and I make it all about me. And my wife's gotten to a point where she has said, I refuse to tell you, quote unquote, how you did. Not even going to play that game. And then she's usually kind to indulge me a few hours later. But when we are more concerned about the weight of God's glory than the weight of what little glory that we would try to hold in our life, two things happen. It makes us free and it makes us confident. It makes us free. You don't have to worry about satisfying the people who are around you. You don't have to worry about making sure that everyone who's in your midst and in your family and at your work are okay with you. Because let me tell you, they're not. Because you're a mess. And I know everybody's not okay with me. But that's okay. As long as I'm seeking God. Because if I'm seeking God, then I'll be humble enough when someone comes to me and says, Brad, said a really hurtful thing. It was foolish. Why'd you say that? If I'm seeking God and I'm humble, then I'll say, you're right, that was really foolish of me. Will you please forgive me? I can be free when I'm more concerned about what God thinks of me and how I'm living my life and the decisions that I'm making. I don't have to have the best of everything. I don't have to compare myself to everyone. But not only am I free, I'm confident. I can step out and be the person that God's made me to be. That God's gifted me to be. I can find my voice. And you want to know what happens when you find yourself in this stream of life, in this path where you're not looking to the left and you're not looking to the right and you're not so worried about what everybody's thinking about you, but where God's put you in this place where you're like, I'm using my gifts and I found my voice. You want to know what happens? You experience joy. I'm not saying it's not hard. And I'm not saying it's not messy. But you experience joy. Because you go, this is who God made me to be. And I'm not making a difference. He's making a difference. And He's not doing it because of me. He's doing it because of Jesus. And Jesus has put His power in me. And Jesus is making a difference through me. So it's not about me, it's about Jesus. But I find great joy in that. When we are more concerned about God than we are about others. It makes us free. It makes us confident. Are you more worried about your reputation, about what others think of you? Are you more worried about God's glory? Listen, if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're hearing this message that God is dangerous and that He's good, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, He's dangerous. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear that. There's not a dime's worth of difference in your life and mine except for Jesus Christ. And that dime makes all the difference. 
Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that we're better than anyone. It means we're forgiven because of Jesus. Because we've come to trust Him and to know Him and to place our faith not in our works but in His works. And if you're a Christian who's here today, I just want to ask you to consider this and I'm going to end. How have you flattened God in your life? In what area have you become stuck in your sin? What do you need to reveal to God? How do you need to become undignified in front of a friend to share with someone in your community what you need help with in order to find healing? Listen. Church, God offers us a rich life. Life in Jesus when we set our hearts on Him. He enables us to live a free and a as confident men and women who find our joy in celebrating our good and our dangerous God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're dangerous. Thank you that you are holy and that you're right and that there's no one like you. But God, good doesn't even begin to do justice to your mercy and your grace has been shown to us undeservingly because of Jesus. God, we are such great sinners. We are in need of your mercy and you have shown us undeserving love through Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for that love. That allows us not just to approach you, not just to gravel, but God to come and to sit in your lap and to call you dad. That Jesus would, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he would cry out, Papa! God, that we have that kind of access. God, I'll be honest in saying, I struggle to even believe it. God. Help us through the power of your spirit to gain a greater view of your gospel, a bigger view of who you are. God, help us not to flatten you, not to make little of our sin, but to bring it to you quickly that our obedience would be steady and fast and that we would run to you, that we would make much of you and find great joy in you. God, thank you. For your son Jesus, it's in his name that we pray and that we worship.